What is the trade-off between making money and meeting the needs of the other stakeholders, be they employees, governments, or the public? Would we make more money if we didn't give a damn about social stuff? Yes, we would, for about five minutes. And then we would get fired by our customers and disinvested by our um, shareholders. Hello, and welcome to Trade-Offs, a podcast where we challenge chief executives on how they're making their companies more ESG-friendly. I'm Ned Salter, Global Head of Investment Research at Fidelity International, and you just heard me talking to Rupert Soames, the then chief executive of Serco, the British multinational services company. Serco deals with people. It takes on contracts from governments to help them in all types of areas, including immigration, justice, and healthcare. From prisons in the U.S. to migrant centers in the U.K., the company is no stranger to the glare of the public eye and the controversy that some of its work stirs. You can hear my full interview with Rupert Soames on Fidelity Answers or check the show notes for a link. Today, though, I'm going over that discussion with two of Fidelity's investment team, equity research analyst Dominic Hayes and head of strategic initiatives for global investment research, Fiona O'Neill. Welcome. Hi, Ned. Hi, Ned. Dom, I mentioned some of Serco's areas of focus in the introduction. Can you elaborate on that and why we're interested in it from an ESG perspective? Sure. Uh, so Serco is about a four and a half billion revenue UK-based outsourcing company. Its main customers are governments, mainly the UK government, the US and Australia. And its key business areas, as you said, are defense, which is about a quarter of a business, Justice and immigration, so things like running prisons, uh, housing for asylum seekers, is about 20% of a business. And then it's sort of a broad range of, of facilities management type services um, and government support. Um, in terms of why we're interested from an ESG perspective, it's, it's an asset like people business. So there's not a huge amount from a scope one and two emissions. Environmental impact is generally quite low. But the social side is very interesting. It employs over 50,000 people and the work they do impacts the lives of citizens around the world. So the, the social aspect is, is what differentiates Serco from an ESG perspective. What would be some of the programs that Serco would be most well known for? So I think the program they're probably best known for in the UK is Test and Trace, which was supporting the UK government in uh, running mobile testing centres um, and also running um, a portion of the call centres, bringing people up. Um, as part of the Test and Trace program. And that was for the COVID pandemic. On Rupert Soames himself, I guess it's worth pointing out that he did uh, complete his tenure as CEO at the end of 2022. But can you give us a quick overview of his leadership at Serco? So Rupert came in in 2014. And uh, when he arrived, the balance sheet was stretched. The culture of the business was completely different. The risk management, uh, the contract bidding structure was not appropriate for, for this sort of business. And, and he's been instrumental in, in cleaning up the balance sheet, changing the, the bidding process, changing the culture of a business. And he's got a fantastic reputation in the markets for doing that. Fiona, uh, Dom in his introductory comments mentioned that Serco is interesting from an ESG perspective. And I wanted to get your take on this. You know, you're working with analysts every day as they assess and report on companies like Serco. What makes this an interesting business to you? I think um, when we first talk about ESG, it's very easy and natural to gravitate towards the E. 
I think what's so interesting about Circo is it really shines a spotlight on the S. Dom has already touched on some of it. Um, you know, Circo has got a very large workforce, over 55,000 employees. So there's the whole issue of workforce management. Circo also has to think about, and you know, their day job is facilities management. Again, how do we think about that? And most importantly, how do we think about community relations? So the particular thing with Circo um, is that they obviously operate immigration centres. How do they do that to take care of both the immigrants in those centres, but also how do they manage the broader community relations uh, where those where those centres are located? I think the other thing with Circo, I, I hope Don would agree with me, is that, you know, we're so used to governments taking responsibility for these controversial or more challenging areas of day-to-day living, of dealing with prisoners, of dealing with immigrants. And actually, it's when a public company does it, you know, it really shines a spotlight on it. And I think it helps us as analysts, as investors, really start to think about how do we quantify how do we measure whether they're good at it or not how good are they at it how can they get better what is the journey that they are on what are the right kind of kpis to be thinking about so i think it's extremely additive to the whole esg debate you've raised some really interesting points and some of them are quite existential which maybe we'll come to further in our discussion but it's a good segue and let's go to our first clip so as we've just been discussing i think circo more than any other company we've spoken to in this series is at the sharp edge of the social component of esg as you've just said fiona and and as such it's profits versus purpose or profits versus people conundrum is under constant scrutiny You mentioned one of your stakeholders were the capital markets, investors, all of whom expect a profit. So what is the trade-off between making money and meeting the needs of the other stakeholders, be they employees, governments, or the public? I don't see that as being a trade-off per se. Would we make more money if we didn't give a damn about social stuff? Yes, we would for about five minutes. And then we would get fired by our customers and disinvested by our um, shareholders. I don't see making money as being in any way um, contradictory to our ESG stance. I can see that other companies might. And, you know, if you are a major hydrocarbon producer, what do you do? Um, uh, But we are uh, not faced by that particular... We have other difficult questions, but that's not one of them. Is there a trade-off that you might make near term that might be more expensive? Could you make your services, Circo, a better organization by investing even more? Uh, taken to the extreme, at what at what cost could you make Circo even better? We provide uh, people-based services to government. We employ fifty-five thousand people. Arguably, if we paid everybody more, that would be a social good, um, and government would be terribly pleased until we came round to tendering, in which case we'd be too expensive and lose the business. I think the trade-offs more come between the to what extent we say to individual investors look this is what we do and if you don't like what we do we understand if you want to go and uh, uh play elsewhere 
um, that is a, a, a trade-off. Investors, particularly on this issue on the social side, do not speak with a common voice. I mean, I've been CEO of public companies for rising 20 years, and you get used to the fact that, you know, the company that you're running is is meat and drink to one type of investors and dreadful for others. So you just have to take that in the role. We can't be all things to all people. It's actually a, a brutally honest and very refreshing confession that goes to some of the heart of these really difficult trade-offs. So, Dom, th- that state of being dreadful to others, to, to what extent does Serco suffer in the capital markets in that respect? So I think there's a couple of their business areas where this is most apparent. Um, I think in the defense part of their business, which is about a quarter of their business, this is an area where people have strong views. And I think it's an area of the market where you have seen a discount applied quite broadly to, to defense businesses. I think what's been really interesting is seeing how that discount has unwound and changed over the past couple of years as the war in Ukraine has added a new perspective to the importance of defense. And and I think Serco um, is no exception there. I think the other part of the business, which is interesting from that perspective, is uh, the immigration and justice services that Serco deliver. To a degree that these business areas are always going to attract some controversy. Uh, this is government policy that not everyone agrees with and people have strong views about. A point that Rupert makes, which is really interesting on this, is that you know, especially when it's work that they're delivering well, is that these same people who will effectively apply a higher cost of capital to to Serco because they're involved in these business areas would also be happy to to say own government bonds. And at the end of the day, Serco are just supporting governments deliver policy which which they've been voted in to deliver. Fiona, uh, Mr. Soam says he doesn't see making money as being contradictory to their ESG stance, but that other companies might. What do you think he means there? Why might Serco's position be different to other companies? I think it's some of the points that Dom touched upon. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Rupert mentioned hydrocarbons. It's very easy to draw a straight line between hydrocarbons and what might be bad for the environment. That straight line between what Serco are doing and good or bad just doesn't exist. A lot of what Serco are doing is not bad per se, it's actually trying to do good, running hospitals, for example, uh, making sure that they are running prisoner detention centres well. And I think even where things are more controversial, like the track and trace that we talked about, it was controversial because, and it was criticised because how much money were they spending? Were they getting it right? But I think we have to step back and say, yes, but they were coming from a point of trying to help a government to execute a policy that they've been voted to do, or in the case of the pandemic, to respond to uh, you know, a black swan event. I want to come back to this point you've raised on government. But on your comments and on the subject of differentiation about Serco versus other, other companies and other industries, Mr. Soames has made pointed remarks around the impact that ESG investing is having when it comes to the division between public and private markets. So let's listen to a clip on that. I have a horrible habit of walking towards gunfire, you've been quoted as saying. Is this a true statement or are you someone who seeks conflict? No, I don't seek conflict, but I don't shrink from it. I think that some of these issues, particularly around 
uh, ESG uh, need conversations like this, which are extended, that you uh, acknowledge that there may be different opinions. But I tell you the other thing that does worry me. It is the fact that, particularly in its wilder forms, the, 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 the fact that ESG is opening still further the chasm that exists between privately owned companies and publicly owned companies. And there are many advantages to being publicly owned. You get good sources of uh, uh, of capital far more cheaply. You are not encouraged to go and, and run massive levels of debt and all these other things. There are good reasons to be a public company. But if this crevasse between the public and the private keeps on getting open further and further, it makes the public markets less attractive, particularly to companies who operate in controversial areas. And I think that one of the advantages, the, the services that the public markets do to society is that they bring transparency. Which would be better for society that Serco doing the difficult and controversial things that we do, that we do that in the in the light of publicity and consequences, or that we were squirreled away and uh, and just didn't give a damn. Dom, do you agree with the position that Mr. Soames takes here in this clip that there is this chasm opening up between public and private? Uh, uh, companies because of the wilder forms of sustainability, as as he puts it? So first of all, I think it's a really good point he makes about the benefits of being in the public eye. At the end of the day, Serco are spending taxpayer money. Um, and I think it's completely right that that their actions and how they execute their contracts are, are scrutinized heavily. And, and um, I think Rupert would agree that that's completely fair. Rupert's come out and said you know, he actively enjoys going in front of parliamentary committees because he thinks it's completely right that the work they do is is, is scrutinised heavily. In terms of whether that chasm between private and public is is starting to open up, I'm not sure you've you've really started to see it yet. Um, certainly for some of the the work that Serco do, such as running prisons, for instance. But I think it's entirely possible, and it comes back to that that previous point about. The sort of effectively uh, the higher cost of capital that that comes as a result of, of the scrutiny of of controversial work, which uh, which we discussed previously, and I, th- I think if you look at other parts of my sector, certainly you, you can actually start to see that emerging. So I think one interesting example has been recently with uh, content moderation work. So people who are reviewing videos which have been flagged um, or AI has picked up as potentially being unsafe or containing offensive images or or something else on, on platforms such as TikTok and Facebook. Um, and the companies performing this work, certainly one that the market leader in, in this area has basically decided to walk away from doing that work completely because of the negative PR and the, the negative ESG impact um, as a result of, do, of doing that work. So and and who will do that work now? It's not entirely clear, but I'd say there's a good chance for that that moves to a less scrutinized, um, less public company. Okay, so I think this is an interesting perspective that 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 is emerging from this conversation, which is that we we want these controversial activities to have a light shown onto it, so that we can be more transparent, and that in that the public can effectively have a a say on the way these activities are 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 being undertaken. Fiona, this chasm between public and private. 
Does it worry you? What solutions might there be? For all of the reasons that Mr. Soames has mentioned, that Dom has mentioned, yes, it worries me. I think it's really important, therefore, that investors play a role that isn't a judgment role. Yes, we want to quantify the impact, but it's much more about engaging with the companies, about having a constructive dialogue, about you know, bouncing ideas off each other, about helping to point the ship in the right direction. And it's about building the multi-year relationships. Changes are not going to happen overnight. It's about a journey that a company might be on to improve the way that they operate. Um, only by keeping the dialogue constructive and focused on what is the point of this discussion? It's not about labeling a company good or bad. It's about working together, investors and the investee companies, toward doing better. So arguably, this is a much more pronounced issue for a company like Serco because its clients are governments, as we've talked about today already. They are using taxpayer dollars, taxpayer money. Uh, so the spotlight should be on their uh, activities, and that, that spotlight is intense. But I did press Mr. Soames uh, on the question of which governments will Serco work for and what they're willing to do for them. Following on this topic of controversy and projects, as we've just discussed, I did want to talk about um, how you decide what contracts you want to take. And you've talked about a set of guiding principles that you've established as an organization and some values that you have. So in terms of, you know, hotly contested regions, how do you decide where you might choose to operate? Well, the vast majority of our business is in the US, UK, Europe, and Australia. We have a smallish business in the Middle East, but one that's actually growing uh, quite fast. Look, the 90% of what we worry about when we're talking about contracts in the democratic markets is the terms and conditions and the price that we can, whether we, the risk reward is correct. It's rare that we sit down and scratch our heads and say, is this morally right that we should be doing it? But when I say rare, two or three times a year, we will go and scratch our heads and see. And quite often, it's about really technical things. For instance, in uh, a new prison, if the customer wants to have a particular policy towards indigenous people or towards transgender or or sex offenders or something like that, we may they may have some policies that we think we would find difficult to go and conform with. Very often for complex operational region, reasons as much as anything else. So, but on the whole, our business is a low margin low capital employed so we make great returns on low margins but the thing that kills it is if you misread the risk dom where are the more risky places that circo is operating the, the one that which stands out is the middle east uh, which is, is it's a small business it's only five percent of revenues and then uh, from an end market perspective i think it's it's clearly justice and immigration is is the um the lightning rod and what are the pros and cons of operating uh, in those slightly more controversial regions? So I think the most obvious point is the, the profits to be made from the contracts. At the end of the day, it's a, a business that, that is there to, to make money. Um, but I think, perhaps less obviously, but I think very importantly is if Circo deliver 
the contracts to the best of their ability, if they do a good job on on what they've been hired to do, then they can improve the lives of the citizens in that country. And um, I think um, Circuit would, would definitely argue that that's what they do. So in that case, you have an alignment between a revenue and a profit opportunity for the company and some element of a social good in that case. What's the con of doing business in, in a place like Saudi Arabia? The reputational risk, if they do a job badly in, in that region or, or at all, um, or just the fact that they're there, that, that can cause negative newspaper headlines, bad PR. I guess more broadly, the impact on employees as well. Circo's employees in countries which don't perhaps have the best labor rights um, and then also, I think, the views of other Circo employees. Will people want to work for a company which is active in, in areas which are controversial um, or work for a company which, which they don't see it as aligned with their own moral compass? So is it Circo's responsibility to choose their customers? That's a good question. I, I think it is. Circo should put in place principles at a high level. The work they do means that they do have to draw moral lines in the sand and um, and they do have a structure in place to do that. We've spoken to people on, on Circo's board in the past about how they form those decisions about areas um, and then markets that they're happy to work, work in versus those which, which cross that line. Fiona, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit given your broad remit at Fidelity, but is it unfair for Circo versus other companies to have to manage demand? Because to a certain extent, in some cases, we would say all demand is good demand. I think all companies have to quantify risk within their business. At the end of the day, it's about the sensitivity analysis that a company needs to run. I think that's the kind of thing that management teams are having to do increasingly today in a world where we have to worry about geopolitical events. In a world where, yes, we've got elected governments but the majorities by which they have come into power are pretty slim these days. So the world is just a more volatile place, I think, than it was. Um, certainly than when I started out as an analyst. We, we've gone through a, a bit of an unsettling period. And therefore, it's really imperative that when making the decisions about what contracts they take on, what acquisitions they make, there's a real robustness around the sensitivity analysis that the, the board of management make. I think it's also incumbent on us as investors to be running sensitivity analysis to help us understand, appraise and value the work that a company is doing. It's not about calling the next quarter or the next year's forecast precisely. It's about understanding, well, if this changes, what happens? You know, if demand changes by X or Y, what does that do to profitability? And what are the questions that we should be asking of the management teams? What should we be understanding about the way in which they have to flex and adapt their business to deal with the different scenarios? In his quote, Fiona, he talked about misreading risk, and you've just mentioned it. It's a topic that's come up in a number of our conversations um, with chief executives. It's risk management and how that's changing over time. You talked about sensitivities, but do you think to a certain extent that companies today are more aware of the negative externalities that, that, they, that they face um, as a function of their operations? Yes, and I think that awareness is only growing. If I come back to the fact that we've just run our annual analyst survey at Fidelity, and one of the questions that we ask our analysts is, 
you know, how much have uh, companies been able to continue their focus on ESG? And I think if we're brutally honest, we were all expecting the results to come back and say after the, the tough financial year of 2022 and all of the headwinds in terms of inflation, supply chain problems, etc., we were really expecting analysts to say, hmm, the companies had to kind of just take their focus a little bit off ESG and, and back onto fundamentals. And actually, the results are surprising, but in a, an encouraging way. The analysts are saying that the focus on all things ESG has been at least maintained, if not stepped up. It's just that it has to be more nuanced. And, you know, I think, you know, when we think about our ESG uh, ratings, we define these as being the expression uh, of the holistic analysis and assessment of how management teams manage or mitigate the negative externalities created by their operations. Um, and in that way, we are trying to provide a framework, we are trying to understand the risk better. And I think it just helps the whole debate around how society as a whole manages risk. I love your characterization that actually the management teams and the investment community are in the same position right now, running these sensitivities, endeavoring to read risk correctly. I think that's a really interesting point. Um, Dom, tell us a little bit about Circo's risk management specifically, and how has it developed in the years that you've been looking at this company? I mean, I, th I think Circo is a really interesting example. And you could argue that Rupert Sames' whole tenure as CEO was about risk management. Um, when he when he took over, the the culture of Circo was such that people couldn't come forwards if they if a problem was happening on a contract. Um, so the the top level management wouldn't hear about it until it was already a, a very serious problem. The the bidding process for contracts encouraged excessive risk taking, and the the balance sheet wasn't appropriate. Um, they had too much leverage for for a business doing the work they they were doing, as Rupert says, very low margin work on the whole. What, what Rupert has done is is completely shift that. The, the culture is much more open and transparent. Um, if, if something goes wrong, people can come forwards. When people are bidding for contracts, they're incentivized appropriately. So they, t they take into account uh, the profitability. You know, is this contract going to be profitable? Can we deliver a good service at the price that we've said that we can, um, which wasn't the case previously? So yeah, I, th I think risk management has been completely central to, to uh, Rupert Soames' tenure. I think what's been interesting now is seeing that risk management approach shift to these um, ESG issues. I, I think their approach when it comes to those issues has been to actually really go on the front foot um, as part of their, their risk management. It's been to say, actually, this work we're doing is a social good, um, not focusing on perhaps the negatives or the people who disagree with whether that this should be government policy, but saying, look, if we do this job well, um, we're improving the lives of citizens in the countries where we work um, and trying to shift perception of, of, of risk into, into more of an opportunity for Circo and, and uh, see, see the positive work that they're doing. So I guess as you're saying, and I'm listening to your comments, we're really talking about balancing, you know, balancing risk, um, um, putting in good risk controls, but really that the role of the CEO is to balance this potential controversy with the work on offer. And that's a big part of the role. Um, but too much controversy can hit the share price of a company uh, and not taking on work uh, puts pressure on revenues. So I asked Mr. Soames how he tries to strike that balance. The scrutiny that public markets brings is maybe another trade-off here, which is that 
Every decision your company needs to take may be faced with some level of controversy. Someone is going to disagree. And so what level of controversy is too much? What makes it worth it for Serco? That is the trade-off and the debate that we have. That is why we have rooted and grounded us. I've been struggling since I've been working for Serco to find a solid and principled foundation that will cover at least the majority of the cases. And that is, if we are asked to do work by democratically elected uh, governments that is within the law, we have to think very hard before we say, oh no, we don't think that that's right, to second guess democratically elected governments in what they do. It doesn't mean to say that we never do or that we're completely on the... But that's a pretty good foundation place to start, I think. And when you when you consider making those trade-offs, is it the court of public opinion that matters and weighs heavily on your decision-making? Is it the influence or the feelings or the values of your employees and your associates that matter the most? How do you sort of weigh that matrix of decision-making? I think what I would say to you is, and this is particularly from an investment point of view, is that being sure-footed in the way that we respond to controversy, saying from the get-go that we acknowledge that if we are spending taxpayers' money and doing the government's will, we have responsibilities to spend it responsibly, to deliver good services, and to deliver those services in a responsible uh, manner. And if people think that we aren't, we must be prepared to make ourselves accountable for that. Okay, so Dom, how do you think Circo strikes the balance? Do you think they do well? I do, I do think they generally do pretty well. I think what Serco are also good at is seeing, is, is seeing the long game and seeing the relationship with their customer as the most important thing throughout any controversies that, that might emerge. And I think uh, Test and Trace, which we touched on earlier, is, is, a, is a good example of this. In the UK at the time, the, the Test and Trace process was, was heavily criticised in, in newspapers and on television and uh, it was branded as Circo test and trace. The coverage was pretty damning. However, if you actually, you know, speaking to Circo throughout that process, you know, they, they were concerned to a degree because all this negative PR. I mean, it's 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 not nice. He was on TV having to defend themselves, and, and it did impact the share price. But the most important thing for them was actually, you know, the government thought they were doing a good job. Um, the, the reality of what was being presented in the media wasn't actually accurate. They, they were only responsible for 20% of the, the testing sites, for instance. They only did half the call centers. And at the end of the day, it, they, they were enacting government decisions. They, they weren't the, the architects of the scheme. Um, so actually, the government was very happy. They strengthened their relationship through, throughout that period. Um, and, and they see to a degree, part of their job is, is just weathering that, that PR storm on behalf of, of their customer, um, i.e. the government. And so, you know, did the controversy, though, hit them in any way, notwithstanding your interesting characterization of the different perspectives of one program? In the short term, it, it definitely did. I, th I think it definitely weighed on their share price through that period. I think it would have probably affected employees working for, for Circo. If, if, you, if a company you're working for is is being ridiculed in, in newspapers every day, that probably isn't great for, for morale, for, for people working there. It probably makes it hard to recruit people. 
and, and to be fair, I think there's probably some people who still associate um, Circo incorrectly, negatively with, with with that program. But I think over the long term, the fact is that it, it did strengthen their relationship with, with government and, and that can only be a good thing going forwards. So Fiona, Mr. Soames says Circo must be prepared to be accountable for the way it delivers its services. And I suspect any CEO or most CEOs would agree with that mantra. Um, but what about this idea that you might be sacrificing profit for, for social good? How do we reconcile that? You're trying to trick me, Ned. Um, look, I think this goes a little bit to what Dom touched upon in his, in his comments uh, earlier about the long game. This is about the arbitrage, the time horizon arbitrage. Um, you might get profit sacrifice on day one, uh, but the longer term outlook may be very different. And, you know, it can be about doing the right things by your workforce, doing the right things for your community that might ultimately result in good PR. Maybe, you know, we've talked about track and trace, but, you know, the pandemic provided us with lots of examples. Let me give you the example of the retailers and and, and immediately Next springs to mind, not least because I'm a big Next customer. Um, But the whole... UK population had to move to a huge reliance on online retailers. And when their stores closed, obviously all that volume was going through their warehouse and and Next continued to operate, as did many other retailers. And they faced a backlash, particularly from their own employees about, well, does our safety not matter? Do we not need to be isolating at home? And in the end, Next took the decision to close their online website. So not just were their physical high street stores closed, but their online presence was also closed for a period of close to two weeks whilst they took time to evaluate the measures they needed to put in place, how they could introduce social distancing into their warehouses to ensure that they were helping and playing their part in keeping their workforce safe and the broader community. Um, And then, of course, when they reopened their website, they did it in a very controlled, very step-by-step manner in terms of the volumes that they thought that they could safely put through their uh, distribution centers. And at the time, I think there were question marks. Did they react early enough? Should they have closed? What about when they reopened? Were people no longer going to want to shop at Next? And I think, you know, if we look back at that, we can actually applaud them and say, wasn't that actually the right thing to do? And I don't think any of us would sit here today, you know, regardless of fortunes related to the economy. I don't think anybody would say that Next's fortunes are going to be, you know, hampered by having taken their website down for a couple of weeks. It's a very interesting uh, point that you've raised on the time horizon arbitrage, short-term versus long-term. But you've also brought to light, you know, changing attitudes and uh, whether they're social or political. And I, I do wonder how a company like Circo manages to navigate those shifting views. And I asked Mr. Soames about those shifting views and how he avoids finding himself on the wrong side of history you're in a different situation to those organizations that may be a natural resource extraction organization, for example, with 
um, science-based targets. Here you are dealing with the sort of social and moral attitudes of society, which inevitably are changing. How do you cope with that over time? Well, governments have to respond to those over time as well. So they're a pretty good guide to that. Uh, but the, one of the most difficult things for me doing my, my work, particularly in engaging with consumers, as with, with investors, is investors themselves are changing their minds. And they change them the whole time. And they think it's completely normal to go into a conversation with us about, you know, saying this is always not acceptable. And then to change their mind six months later. Well, actually, it's quite difficult for us to, uh, to um, uh, deal with. But I do think there is a particular thing around attitudes of social investing where it is evolving. We have seen this on defence, where defence stocks are massively underrepresented it, portfolios, so-called ESG uh, portfolios. Um, but people are changing their mind on that. And that's quite hard to deal with as somebody who's trying to have some consistency, both towards our people. I can't, we can't change what we do on a dime. We can, we are reasonably agile, but we can't sort of disinvest. So I think we've got to be prepared to say on some things like our involvement in defence, our involvement in um, injustice, our involvement in immigration that are controversial things. I think we've got to be prepared to say, that's us. Dom, as an analyst, how do you view this sticking to your guns approach that Mr. Soames kind of just laid out? So I think one, one thing I like about Circo is the fact that they do have a a set of principles, um, a set of values which they use to guide which areas that they're ha- they're happy to work in, and and I think providing you know they're following those principles at a high level, I think sticking to your guns is 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 a good approach. I think when it comes to the execution of a contract or some of the more subtle issues which emerge from actually running a contract in in the real world and in some of these more controversial areas. I think they do have to listen. I think they do have to engage because I think not being open to feedback and improving would be the wrong approach. Maybe we all felt a little uh, uncomfortable in his comments about investors and being in the crosshairs again and always changing our minds. Fiona, do you sympathize with that view? I do to a degree. But, you know, I don't think this is anything new. I think there's always been this challenge. You know, I can think uh, of times when, you know, we have had a focus in the market on dividends versus share buybacks, capital on the balance sheet versus being deployed for M&A. Um, I think the key point, as he's saying, is you can't change your mind as a, as a company CEO on a dime. I know plenty of people who are CFOs and CEOs who are trying to run their business for the longer term. They can't just run it to satisfy quarterly earnings reports for the market. That doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play. We've talked about it. It's about understanding and it's about quantifying and it's about running the sensitivities. But let me just give you an example of the challenges that companies are facing. You know, I can think of an example of a, of a, of a company that was under repeated pressure to deploy the capital on their balance sheet for M&A to help them plug a revenue gap or revenue shortfall that was was coming down the road. The problem is, for the company, that the moment they do that, they think they've ticked the investor box, and then 
actually the returns are not quite what everybody might have hoped for and, and then they feel like they are criticised and they get a discount applied to them for poor allocation of capital. So I think that brings us back to the point of, you know, it's about taking a long-term view. I think that's the strength of what we're trying to do in our fundamental ratings and in our ESG uh, ratings. We're not looking out three months, six months, we're trying to take a minimum of a, of a 12 months time horizon. And even that is short. We should be looking at 24 months and beyond to, to, to spot the winners. So Circo teaches us much more about the social side of sustainability, from changing social attitudes to the relationship of citizens and their governments delivering social good versus profit generation and maintaining your license to operate are all sources of revenue, good revenue. You can hear my full interview with Rupert Soames on the Fidelity Answers podcast, available now. You can also read and watch more on this and other interviews with CEOs facing their own trade-offs at your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. Check links in the show notes. I'd like to thank my guests, Fiona O'Neill and Dom Hayes. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark with technical support from Connor Bailey and Callum Blitz. The editor is Richard Edgar. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.